To any Tudor fanatic, the name Hans Holbein is quickly recognized as one of the most prolific and exceptional artists at the court of Henry VIII. Today, co-host Melanie Taylor visits with Dr. Kate Hurd about some of the most magnificent images he's produced for us. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. I'm Mel Taylor. On behalf of the podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Kate Hurd, Senior Curator of the Royal Collections Trust. Dr. Hurd is the curator behind the five-star exhibition Holbein at the Tudor Court, currently on at the Queen's Gallery, Buckingham Palace, until the 14th of April. So get your skates on and get to see it. Previously, she has curated Maria Merian's Butterflies, an exhibition of wildlife observations painted in the late 17th century. Maria Sibylla Merian was a German artist who is now recognized as one of the earliest entomologists, naturalists, and scientific illustrators. In 2012, Dr. Hurd curated the Northern Renaissance Dura to Holbein, another five-star exhibition, and one I thoroughly enjoyed. She's listed on IMDb as appearing in the 2014 two-part series, The German Kings Who Made Britain, and a one-off program aired in 2009 examining Henry VIII, patron and plunderer, which celebrated the 500th anniversary of his accession. Dr. Hurd, welcome to the show and congratulations on another magnificent exhibition. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, for our listeners who may not have had the pleasure of visiting the gallery, could you give us a short description of its history? Absolutely. The display of works from the Royal Collection has a really long history um, in the state apartments, in the royal residences. But the Queen's Gallery, which is part of Buckingham Palace, was first opened in 1962. And it's in a space which was used by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert as a chapel, which sustained damage in the Second World War. And so that was, after the Second World War, re-envisaged as a, an, an exhibition space, as a gallery for display of works from the Royal Collection. And in 2002, the gallery was reopened after a refurbishment and expansion by the architect John Simpson. And it has three main galleries, and those show a series of rotating exhibitions from the Royal Collection. So there's always something different to see. Yes, I must admit that I brought various groups to various exhibitions, and I love the way it's laid out. And I love the colour scheme of the walls as well, because they really show the paintings to their best advantage. They do, Um, don't they? Those wonderful bright colours. Yes, yes. Absolutely fantastic. And... The 500th anniversary in 2009, that one was at Windsor Castle, wasn't there? There was a fabulous exhibition there. It was. It's, it was a smaller exhibition which focused on Henry VIII and looked at Henry VIII um, works relating to him in the Royal Collection and at his connections with Windsor Castle because, of course, Henry's buried at Windsor. So yeah. that included a few of the Holbein drawings, but also some um, manuscripts in the library, all sorts of things. So how long was that in the planning? Uh, The 2009 exhibition. I mean, all exhibitions from the Royal Collection, all exhibitions usually take a few years to plan. So um, I think that one took a couple of years. Holbein at the Tudor Court has taken a a good few years of thinking and planning and discussing. So they're not quick, but they're fun. No, no, I must admit, I've curated a couple of exhibitions here down in Mm. Surrey and elsewhere. 
and I've always it's all seems to have been a minimum of a year or 18 months and that's with living artists so and certainly with none of the access to anything that you've got so it's yeah I know how much hard work you put in so apart from celebrating specific anniversaries such as Royal how do you go about deciding the theme of an exhibition from using the Royal Collection? Well as I said all the exhibitions in the gallery are drawn from the Royal Collection. So we look at areas in which the collection is really strong, where we can we can pull together a, a really good exhibition. So for the case of Holbein, it was simply a, a chance to celebrate those that incredible group of works by Holbein in the collection. Um, and it is the works that have shaped the exhibition, because as you'll know from having mm. seen it, those works are from Holbein's time at the Tudor Court. So we can't easily reflect his work in Basel, so much, but we've got one of the most impressive group of works from his time working in Tudor England. So the, the exhibition had to be Holbein at the Tudor Court. Um, <laughs> it's it, 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 it sort of curated itself, if you see what I mean. Gosh, that's that's a wonderful, wonderful um, resource to have. But the the collection also lends out, doesn't it, to exhibitions? Because there was one recently at the Getty. Absolutely. Yes. Um, works are loaned from the collection to exhibitions across the world. So a number of um, drawings and, and a painting travelled across to the, the exhibition, which was at the Getty in Los Angeles and then um, at the Morgan in New York. So, yes. Right. Back to the exhibition. What I loved was as you entered it and you came face to face with Nolimi Tangai, the Do Not Touch Me. And that is such a beautiful and fresh as the day it was there. So I've got several questions about it. My first immediate thought in seeing it was, this is a really subtle way of saying, don't touch any of the exhibits. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. It, it, it's there because it's the most visually stunning painting. It, it's just gorgeous. Every time I see it, I, I sort of stop and think, wow, it's it's gorgeous for the colours. It's gorgeous from the way Holbein has painted both the figures and the backgrounds and the, the trees and the landscape. Um, it's the most exquisite piece of painting. So it's it's there almost to say, wow, look at Holbein right at the start. I particularly love the, the, the rolled back tomb and the light coming forth with the angels. I mean, that's such another light source. And and it it just it just zings. I think it's absolutely beautiful. But do we it know who glow, it was painted it? for? We don't, and that's another reason for putting the, the the painting right at the start of the exhibition. Is it's a, it's quite a mystery. Um, we don't know who it was made for. We don't know where it was intended to hang. We don't know anything of the circumstances of its production. All we know is that it's by Holbein. Um, but there is quite a strong argument to make that it was painted in his in England shortly after he arrived in 1526. So it's one of the early paintings he made during that first visit between 1526 and 1528. So um, we, we think that because it's painted on an, an oak panel that he didn't use um, in mainland Europe. So it seems to be something that he's painted in England. So the painting introduces his talent as an artist, his brilliance with paint, his brilliance at modeling. But it also says, there are lots of mysteries about this man, one of the most famous artists ever, and there's a lot we don't know about him. The, the lack of documentary evidence about him is stunning. I mean, you know, talk about presence through absence. Um, are you aware of Emma Cahill Mohan? Uh, she's just done her, her PhD thesis on Catherine of Aragon as ah, yes. mention of the yeah. arts. 
Um, and my thoughts were perhaps it was done for Sir Thomas More because of the letters of introduction. And then when I was talking to Emma fairly recently, um, I suddenly thought perhaps it was done for Catherine, you know. It, it could have been done for a number of people. We know that Holbein was working for a number of senior court figures in that first period. So in the exhibition, we've got that portrait of Moore, those two drawings of Moore, where, you know, as you say, his his sort of introduction to England was through Sir Thomas More. We've also got the, the, the portraits and the drawing and the finished painting of Henry Guilford, who's another very senior court figure. William Warham, Archbishop of Canterbury, is on the wall as well. Holbein... You see him stepping into the country and immediately getting these senior court figures as patrons, I think probably because they were correspondents of Erasmus. Um, so he has this in through Erasmus. But any one of those men or women who he first worked for could have, um, you know, commissioned that painting from him. One day we'll find the, the, the piece of paper that tells us. But it's a mystery at the moment. I particularly love the, 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 the sketches of Henry Guilford and his wife, but you haven't got the one of his wife in there because she looks as though she, she looks as though she's about to burst into giggles. But in, she does, yes, <laughs> she's lovely. But the portrait, <laughs> that, which is in the states, isn't it? Her her portrait. The, she yes, looks, um, she looks fierce. Absolutely, the the drawing um, for of of Lady Mary Guildford is in Basel, along with a wonderful group of Holbein's works in Basel. The painting is in St. Louis, Missouri. They were originally painted. Sir Henry and and Mary Lady Guildford were were commissioned as pairs as a pair, but they they are now in different places. They 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 were you know on the market and they were split up. Um, but as you say, there's that wonderful contrast between the drawing in which she she really does look as if she's 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 about to laugh, and then the portrait, which is very much more serious. Yeah. Yeah. And you well, you find that throughout Holbein. And that's something we try and pull out in the exhibition is the way he edits and refines his images. So with Henry Guilford, there's that sense that he's um, making Guilford seem more authoritative in the, the finished portrait. Um, I don't know if you, you 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 remember the drawing of Simon George or George Cornwall, but if you yes. put that next to the, the finished painting in the Schädel in Frankfurt, um, you can see how Holbein has edited and edited, and that's the case for so many of his works. And I think it's because he's a perfectionist. He just never stops making things as good as he can be. His output's really huge, isn't it? When you yes, I mean, I think there's a lot that was lost. Um, I mean, many of the paintings don't survive. We've got the drawings, but not the paintings. So we know that they were probably paintings made. I think a large number of the drawings don't survive too. But that was his career it was his work so that was what he did day in day out um his bread and butter so why do you think henry wanted to have all of those you know why did he you know the, the, those sketches have been in the collection right from holbein's death why did henry you know henry sort of grab them well, I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> but we d we don't know. We don't know the the mechanism by which they came into the royal collection. They Holbein dies in fifteen forty three, and he asks that all his goods and the contents of his studio are sold to support two young children um, who are in London who are still at nurse. And we have a gap of four years, and then in fifteen forty seven, the book of portrait drawings they were in an album is recorded in a closet at Whitehall Palace. And this is recorded at the change of reign between Henry VIII and Edward VI. So it's 
the book is recorded at the moment that Edward VI takes the throne, but it must have been there under Henry VIII. And you can speculate, did Henry VIII take these works? Were they given to him? They show members of the court. Um, did he purchase them? It's it's impossible to tell. Yes, again, it's that lack of documentary evidence, that all-important invoice and receipt that's Absolutely. not there. <laughs> yes. For those who haven't been, you know, that walking through that first room and you get the feeling of what was already there, you know, Henry VII was definitely saying the Tudor's dynasty is here to stay. And what's more, it's attracting lots and lots of foreign artists. And look, we've got works from Spain, we've got works from the Netherlands. And those those paintings in themselves are absolutely crisp. And, of course, there's the panel on the back of um, the stand, which has the Noli Mi Tangere on it, which shows the Tudors, you know, Henry VII and uh, Elizabeth kneeling with all of the children alive and no longer with us. And that's gorgeous. That yes, and it resonates, doesn't it, with portcullises and roses and the dragon across the top. Do we have any idea who might have actually painted that? We think it's a Flemish artist, probably working in England. Um, we don't know his or her identity. It's a very competent piece of work, as you say. It's mm. it's got those wonderful portraits. It's got the most fantastic fabrics the angels are wearing. This sort of changeable fabric that seems to change colour in the light, and that wonderful curling dragon with Saint George sort of shooting through the air to to catch the dragon. It's the most wonderful painting. It's thought it was an altarpiece for one of Henry the Seventh's chapels, but we don't know which chapel it would have been. Uh. It clearly never had wings. There's no fixing for wings. So it's a single panel for an altar. But it really is one of those, as you say, that that gallery absolutely full of works from across Europe that we are pretty certain were owned by Henry VII and Henry VIII. So you get this sense of a lively court full of visual culture from across Europe and paintings from Spain, sculpture from Italy, French miniatures. And you get the sense that art was travelling so that English patrons in the late 15th and early 16th century were really up to date with what was happening in continental Europe, was happening in Italy and France and Germany. Of course, people travelled. So ambassadors, um, churchmen, people are travelling to France and Spain and seeing these things for themselves. But also artists are travelling. So we have that wonderful portrait of Louis Twelfth, and we think that that was brought to England by the artist Perial, who was sent to England as part of the marriage negotiations with, with Mary Tudor. So you've got this real churn of, of, of art and culture crossing the channel. And you also realise that the, I mean, the Tudors are a young dynasty. They want to establish themselves as a leading power in Europe. And one of the ways of doing that is not only creating those marriage alliances and creating those diplomatic alliances, but displaying the works of art that other monarchs are displaying. So yeah. they're really advertising their importance. And I, I must admit, I love standing, as you say, standing in the centre of that room and looking at the faces around and looking at the different paintings that, that would have been on display in Whitehall Palace, for example, in 1542. That, that perial of Louis XII, I mean, mm. you know, there's all sorts of um, popular histories about the marriage and Marie, Marie 
uh, Tudor, La Reine Blanche, and and you think, gosh, he looks quite young. It's a copy of a portrait, and it's right. a it's a it's a workshop production. So it's probably brought across by the artist, but but possibly produced within his workshop. And it's a it's a standard type. So I think you'll find that it's it's a, like Henry VIII, the type that Holbein creates of Henry VIII is perpetuated and perpetuated. It's not necessarily the most up to date image, um, right. but it's, it's wonderful. It's on this blue background that you see Holbein using. We know that Holbein was in France in 1524. So works of art like this would have been very familiar to him. Yes, it's. It's that idea that this emerging dynasty is it, yeah. it really comes forward. And then as you get towards the end of the room, you have those lovely um, on just to the left. You've got the, the workshop of Holbein um, with the Erasmus. And then you've got the one which I love, which is the Froben. I think yes. that one of Johannes Froben with his hands up his sleeves, hiding his printer's ink stained fingers. And you're thinking... Gosh, but these the workmanship in that, you know, he's he's going to blink at some point, and possibly. I'm sure he around. does. Yeah, yeah. He probably saves his blinking until the gallery's closed, and you can just imagine. But he he does look absolutely lifelike, doesn't he? And you can imagine him taking his hands out, rolling up his sleeves, and getting back to the printing press. He really has this this incredible. Um, sort of workmanship about him um it it's it's a fascinating portrait because of course it's by someone who knew him very well Holbein was working for Froben was designing books for Froben and next to the um the portraits that pair of portraits we've got um a, a case with books designed by Holbein so you get that sense of Holbein's making his career and Froben is one of his great supporters so but you see all the elements of a Holbein portrait there as well, that wonderful blue background, the sitter, as you say, appearing alive, looking as if he's going to blink and um, throw shown in that 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 profile. He's shown in three quarters profile because he's going to face Erasmus and um, in, in that wonderful friendship diptych, which, you, you know, um, we think Froben commissioned the copy of Erasmus to sit with it. So that that the two could be displayed together in his house. Now, did that did do we know if that came to England as a gift to um, Sir Thomas More, or was no? It... I think that came later. That came um, later. Yeah, yeah. We know that um, portraits were exchanged as gifts, and and Erasmus um, would send portraits. He sent one to Warham. Um, More has a portrait. He he dealt. You know, they, they all. They all exchange portraits as gifts, but we think the Froben portrait was one for his own house. Right. And because on the opposite wall, you've got the, the sketches of Sir Thomas More and his father and the other members of the family. And that really, you know, you feel as though you're in the presence of some very great men just from the sketches. Well, you are in a sense in the presence because these are the sheets of paper that, that Holbein used to take the sittings from the life. So he will have sat with those people in front of them, in front of him. So that that you get that sense of being being there with them. Absolutely. And are all, those, are all the sheets of paper watermarked? Some of them are watermarked, not all of them. Um, sheets of paper at the time are quite large and Holbein will use sections of the sheet of paper. So it depends very much whether he's used a section with a watermark or not. But but oh. some of those do have watermarks. Yes. And, and also the tapestry there, 
with the yes. um, quote, was it Dryden's um, translation of the Aeneid? Yes, yes. It's it's one of a series of five tapestries telling the story of the Aeneid, which were acquired by Henry VIII in the 1530s um, from Brussels. They're wonderful. They've got gold wrapped and silver wrapped threads. They're, they're the most beautiful, expressive um, tapestries. The one we've got on display shows Neptune calming the seas. Um, Juno has asked for a storm to be raised because she wants Aeneas's fleet to be shipwrecked. And you see Aeolus lifting a trapdoor. It's the most incredible. He's pulling a trapdoor backwards and the winds are escaping. And Neptune is riding in to calm the storm. And a, a rainbow is appearing to say the storm is over. Um, and it's it's a wonderful tapestry. And we we put on the wall beside it a quotation of the relevant passage from the, the Aeneid in a later translation, but a really gorgeous translation by Dryden. So you can read the passage that it's it's um, illustrating and look from the the poem to the the tapestry. Was but this it, it's the, one of my things. Yeah, it, it, I love the Aeneid. I mean, I, I studied classics in translation when I was at school, and and Homer and all of the Greek um, storytellers absolutely captured my imagination. And the I felt it really gave you a flavour of what Holbein would have felt like and the what how he would have experienced walking around the court and seeing that if he was allowed to. Do we know if he was allowed to? Uh, we're back to no documents at all. No documents. I mean, he must have he must have had access to figures at court so he could portray them. But remember, the court is very hierarchical. Mm. So according to your status, there are only certain places you could go. So um, the more senior you were, the further you could get through the suite of rooms towards the king. Um, but we don't know. I mean, we know a certain amount about Holbein's position at court, but we don't know where he had access, what he was able to see. Remember, also, he may have known art in the collections of people like Thomas More, Henry Guilford. Um, so he will have been experiencing works of art. And we've also got that wonderful portrait of Erasmus by Quinton Massey in that same section. And we know that Erasmus tried to get Holbein to meet Massey in Antwerp on his way up to London. We don't know if the meeting ever happened, but if he did, he'd have seen paintings like that. So you get you get the sense of the sort of Holbein sort of in, exposed to all these different sorts of, of influences. But actually, as a, he, he's obviously quite a cultured man as well, so that because um, you wouldn't have any Tom, Dick, or Harry sort of um, appointed king's painter, would you? In in is it fifteen thirty three? He gets fifteen thirty six. We think that's when he's first recorded, but we don't have the date of appointment. So it's by November fifteen thirty six when a letter mentions that he's king's painter. I think you know, throughout the exhibition, we're really showing Holbein's talent as an artist. And it was that talent that brought him success at the court. I don't think there's, he was he was a craftsman and it was his his brilliance as a craftsman that brought him that rather than any sense of, of I don't know, his character or anything like that. It, it will have been his, his, his brilliance as a craftsman. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. he, he he illustrates books. He clearly knows Erasmus and and he Thomas More. He's got access to all these figures, but but it is his art, his absolute brilliance. I can't, I can't think of another word apart from brilliant. But there's absolute brilliance as an artist that that brings him success. The the second room, of course, which is the the sketches themselves. Yeah, I mean that. I was absolutely convinced that the minute that every 
the gallery closed, they were all going to come out of their frames and say, oh, that's another day gone. Did you see that woman over there? I mean, they were wonderful. But the one which really struck struck me um, was the, the pinpricks in the Thomas More mm. and how it relates to the Frick um, as, you know, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, but also Sir Thomas Wyatt because he yes. just cackles with anger. It's a wonderful picture of Wyatt, isn't it? I mean, they're both wonderful pictures. And to be honest, all of the drawings in that gallery are wonderful because they're they've fabulous. been chosen, because they're, they're, they're wonderful to go on, on the walls. But the one of Wyatt is, isn't it fantastic? It's at the centre of the end wall. And it, I, I put it quite deliberately at the centre of the wall because he's got such a strong pose. And if people don't know it, he's he's got his eyes turned to the side. He's looking at something almost off screen and we don't know what he's looking at. But it gives him this sense of restlessness, um, of wanting to move on to the next thing, of being about to leap out of the room. And I I mean, I don't think Holbein intended that. But but Wyatt, that wonderful biography by Susan Brigden, he, he is this very restless figure. He's, he, he is a figure who's constantly on the move for, for his work as an ambassador and I don't think Holbein intended to make him seem as if he was about to leap off and do something else, but he absolutely does. And we uh, put him next to that that wonderful drawing of Mary Shelton and, and that sense that Mary Shelton is one of the people who preserves for us Wyatt's poetry. It's, uh, it, you know, I love the thought that you say they're, they're next to each other. Are they discussing poetry when the galleries close? Absolutely. I mean, recently interviewed uh, Rebecca Crossmore, who's uh, done a monograph on uh, the production of the Devonshire. Um, it's, it's very academic work. And what comes across is, of course, Wyatt and the mystery of Wyatt and how much he did, you know, how much he 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 gave or inspired. But my other question was to, to Rebecca um, was, do we know anything about George Berlin? And of course, George Berlin is absent from the sketches. <laughs> we don't have a drawing that's identified as George Berlin. There are a number of unknown sitters and we don't know who they are, but there's no way of knowing who they are. Um, so we do not have to our knowledge a drawing of George Berlin or a portrait by Holbein of George Berlin. Um, we have Anne Berlin, we have Mary Shelton, who's a, a cousin of Anne Berlin. And those networks of the Berlin-Shelton families, those Norfolk networks are very clear, but um, we don't know if Holbein ever made a drawing of George Berlin or not. The one who always amazes me that we don't have a drawing of is Francis Bryan, who is so connected with so many of mm. those sitters. And Gosh, wouldn't you love to know what Francis Bryan looked oh, like? Oh, certainly. Um, I mean, he had all but, sorts of episodes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I sometimes look at the figures and think, could this be Francis Bryan? I think he'd, he'd had damage to one of his eyes, so he should be quite easy to spot. But we, I, I, you know, we don't know what he looked like. So you then realise how valuable the surviving Holbein drawings are that we do know what Mary Shelton looked like. We do know what Thomas Wyatt looked like. We've got this record of Moore's appearance and Warham and Guildford. And you start to think of all these names, these people we read about, and it's Holbein who gives us their appearance, that, that sense that, that they could speak and stand off the walls. We, we wouldn't have their, their faces in our heads if it wasn't for Holbein. Am I right in thinking that it's Holbein is the first artist who actually captures all of these people, and luckily we have these sketches, because mm. really the English had been 
killing each other for about 100 years beforehand and they hadn't had time for poetry or <laughs> art or anything and it's the turn of the 1500s and the new dynasty coming in suddenly is this do you think this is why the tudors are such um a draw for everybody because they can see what people look like like cromwell and henry and possibly anne dare i mention anne I, but then <laughs> i think that that is one of the reasons that that um Holbein is so compelling because he does record these faces. I think it's largely a question of survival. And I it's a really interesting question. And it's one I'm asked a lot. And I come at it from a slightly odd angle because I trained as an earlier medievalist. So I started working in the 15th, the early 15th century, and I've 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 expanded yeah. into the 16th century, you know, for my PhD was 15th and early 16th century. So I almost come at it from the other end. And I I think that we do have a problem of survival. I think that people were commissioning portraits before Holbein. We know from that first room, there were portraits at the court that had come from, from abroad. We know that there were artists such as the Flemish artist of the Henry VII's altarpiece who mm. were working in England. Um, we know that miniaturists such as Lucas Horenbout, um, who taught Holbein the art of miniature, were in England, working in England before Holbein. Remember, if you take portrait in its widest sense, you have tomb sculpture, you have mural paintings. But I think what's happened is that Holbein has survived. And we've got this corpus, this incredible corpus of likenesses of these men and women who were living through the most incredible time. I mean, every time, every historical period when you look at it is incredible. You could pick any five year stretch and it would be amazing. But there's something about the, you know, 1485 through to 1603, which is just, wow, what a, what a period to be alive in. And, and these are the people who are experiencing it. Yes, I, I, I agree. I mean, my my focus is actually Lavina Tierlink. And oh, yes. um, uh, I've been researching her for 17 years and I've turned up some very interesting stuff. But anyway, moving right along from there, <laughs> Mary Shelton. Lady yes. Haveningham. Haveningham. I think Henningham is it's it's quite a complicated one. I always say Henningham, whether whether I'm right, it's a Suffolk, a place in Suffolk. So but yeah, right. Lady Henningham, I call her. Yeah, but that's but she later. Looks... She's Mary Shelton to us. <laughs> right, good. But she looks very sad. Is that it, because it flows off the off the off the paper? Is that it really does. Yes, yeah. it's it's. In fact, I think it's absolutely a wonderful thing. But there are two big omissions: Henry and Cromwell. There are yes. no pictures. <laughs> no, um, I mean there are a lot of what we assume are missing drawings. Mm. Um, quite a few paintings don't have drawings, and quite a few drawings don't have paintings. So we don't have a painting of Mary Shelton. It's one of Holbein's most detailed drawings. She's the lady on our poster, it's one of his most beautiful drawings. And I think there's a sense that he was quite compelled by her character as we've, we've spoken about her as one of the collectors of the Devonshire manuscript. She clearly had a very strong character. Um, but in terms of Henry VIII and Cromwell, there is, remember, there is a drawing for Henry VIII. That's at the National Portrait Gallery, the Chatsworth cartoon for yeah. the Whitehall mural, which is a wonderful, large, full-scale drawing. So we do have a Holbein drawing of Henry VIII. We don't have a drawing of Cromwell, but the portrait of Cromwell was made in 1532. 
And to my knowledge, we have very few drawings surviving from shortly after Holbein returned from from Basel for the second time. So he goes back to Basel in 1528. He comes back to England in 1532. We know he makes the Cromwell painting, but he also makes a series of paintings of merchants at the steel yard. So we have the unidentified merchant and Derek Bourne also in the exhibition and no drawings survive for them as well. So what I've suggested in the book that accompanies the exhibition is actually that the the drawings are not preserved. There's a, a period of time where Holbein isn't systematically keeping his drawings. And we know that he worked from drawing to painting. So it seems very unlikely that he didn't make drawings for the steelyard merchants for Cromwell. It's just they're pieces of paper. It's a miracle when a piece of paper survives 500 years. And I'm sure they just didn't survive. That that portrait of Derek Bourne. Yes. That, um, I remember what you were saying about how how Holbein was sculpting the face because evidently he was a bit chubby. Yes, he starts with very round cheeks. And this has been the most fantastic project. Derek Bourne is a painting which has been conserved and is on display for the first time since its conservation. Um, Derek and the head of paintings conservation, Nicola Christie, travelled to Los Angeles together. And um, the Getty Conservation Institute in Los Angeles very, very generously put their resources at her disposal So she was able to examine the painting incredibly closely and to look underneath the layers using um, imaging devices, which mean you don't need to take the paint away. You can see underneath the layers. And so she was able to see how Holbein had constructed the portrait. And if people visit the exhibition, they'll see we've got some of this. We've got a room that has some of the information about her research and what she discovered. But the x-rays and the X, uh, reflect, X-ray, oh, I've got to get this red, infrared. XRF. <laughs> XRF, that's it. I always get so muddled with the scientific terms of X-rays and XRF and all these different ways of looking under the, under the panel, under the paint, showed that Derek had these really round cheeks and that Holbein had, in a series of amendments, sculpted away at his profile and moved his cheeks in and in and in until they, he created this really arresting image of a young man with really sculpted cheekbones, a very sculpted face who looks straight out at you from the portrait. And he rests his arm on a plinth in front of him and he meets you in the eye. And all of them look as if they could step out of the frame, but Derek more than, more than any. And as you'll know, we chose to close the exhibition with him because this is an ex. Oh, this is a portrait that celebrates Derek Bourne, and Derek Bourne is a young merchant who's finding success. But it also celebrates Holbein because the plinth he leans on has that wonderful inscription that says, "This portrait only needs a voice, and it would be alive." Um, and that is how Holbein was seen by his contemporaries. That was that was his genius. He could create these lifelike images that. Absolutely. As you say, they look as if they're going to blink and talk to you. They are quite incredible. And you have other, this portrait of the young princess, Elizabeth, and um, the one of young Edward Edward VI. Um, Yeah, it's Mary and Edward VI. It's Mary rather than Elizabeth and Edward VI. Yeah. So it's, you know, that that you can, you see the difference in, in, yes, they're beautiful paintings, but they're nothing like the genius. 
You know, well, they're very slight. I find those very interesting. The The drawing of Edward is very slight because he was very little. So Holbein has just taken a very slight, he, he won't do a three hour sitting no, like an adult. No, so he's just really a fast. very slight sketch. The drawing of Mary, you have to look at it quite closely. It's very, very rubbed, which means that a lot of the chalk and the original sort of detailing has been lost. But if you spend some time just standing in the gallery and looking at it and, and just let it sort of soak into your eyes, as it were, you get that, you start to see what a beautiful drawing it is and the way Holbein's modelled her and captured her character. And you, 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 if you look at it alongside those descriptions of her as being very learned, very well read, you know, she could speak a number of languages. You, you, it's there. It's absolutely there. It's just that subsequent to Holbein, it, it's, you know, it's a chalk drawing on paper, chalk will rub off the surface of paper. So it's just over the centuries, people have looked at it and it's it's just slightly more rubbed than the others. It's amazing how 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 much of that actually has has actually survived. And I was standing with a colleague who's um, looking at the iconography of Mary and mm. we were looking very, very, very closely at it, as he said, and he kept saying, she's breathing. <laughs> so it still comes across. Yeah. It Which does. And we don't know the circumstances of the production of the drawing. What was it it was intended for? There's no surviving painting from it. But absolutely, she's right there. I mean, she was right there in front of Holbein when he made the drawing. And that comes across in, in the drawing that we see on the gallery wall today. Oh, knowing the history of Mary, um, you know, that was must have been quite an amazing time. I, I yeah. But... Next to that, there is the famous sketch, is it or is it not, Anne Boleyn? Perhaps you could tell me about that. Yes. That is fascinating. It is fascinating, and it's a subject of real debate. And um, as you'll know, you've seen the exhibition, the label says Anne Boleyn. Um, I believe it to be Anne Boleyn. But um, we've put it on the wall to encourage debate. I'd love to know what people think. Do they think that we, we've made the case the case to me is made not by a single piece of evidence, but by a group of small pieces of evidence yeah. that come together to form a jigsaw. And to me, the argument that it's Anne Boleyn is quite compelling. And it's been made by a number of different people, a number of people have contributed to this argument. Um, one of the arguments is the inscription on the drawing which names her as Anne Boleyn, which is in an 18th century hand, but is based on an identification by Sir John Cheek, who was tutor to Edward VI, who would have known Anne Boleyn, what she looked like. So it's it, it has an eyewitness status. Um, she is wearing clothing which have, has been connected to um, clothing given to Anne by Henry VIII, um, which is something Maria Hayward has worked on Anne Boleyn's wardrobe and has made this suggestion, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, the point of, of debate is often her hair, because we know from contemporary accounts that Anne was brunette, but the drawing has quite light hair. And if you look closely, she's got brown eyes, which I would think is a really good start. Yeah. But um, as you look at the drawings in the exhibition, you can see how Holbein built up texture and colour through layers of different coloured chalks. He's using natural chalks, which are the colour that they come out of the ground in. And he makes hair by starting with a lighter layer and then building darker layers on top of that to create this texture. And this this I mean, all of our hair is not one color. It's all sorts of different colors. And it, he pulls that out. 
with Anne Boleyn, when we looked at it under the microscope, that area, particularly of the drawing, is quite rubbed. So um, we think that the darker layers, and you can see if you look closely, some of the darker chalk has survived on top, but the, it appears lighter than it, it would have appeared in the, it, when the drawing was first made. So her hair was probably originally darker. And then there are the Wyatt arms on the back. This is the only drawing in the Royal Collection that's been used as scrap paper, essentially. At some point, Holbein has turned that drawing over and drawn the Wyatt arms on the back. And um, there is, you know, no reason for him to have done that unless he was not going to want to make a portrait of the sitter again. And he, with all the other sitters in the exhibition, he keeps the drawings. We assume it seems almost certain that he kept those drawings for whatever reason. But this one has become obsolete. And in November 1532, Henry Wyatt, one of his patrons, dies. So you can imagine he turns the piece of paper over. He doesn't need Anne Boleyn's portrait anymore, but he does want to make a sketch of the Wyatt arms. It's, so, yeah, it's you know, an intimate yeah. portrait, though. It, it is. He, yeah, how would he have had access to her wearing what, in, in essence, is something to keep her hair underneath a, a hood of some sort. Yeah, she's wearing a linen coif on her yeah. head. And and actually, it's a gorgeous drawing. Um, if you look at the way Holbein's captured the knot at the back of the coif, it's gorgeous, mm. gorgeous piece of drawing. I think it was always intended as an intimate portrait. I think it was always intended as an informal portrait. And my own belief is that it may have been a drawing for a miniature rather than a full-scale painting mm. and a miniature for Henry VIII to... to um, sort of holding his hand and be besotted with. You can imagine that. Um, it's not the only um, portrait of the time showing a sitter wearing similar clothes. Um, Lucas Horenbout, the Flemish miniaturist, made a portrait of Henry VIII's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, wearing a similar sort of linen cap and, and essentially linen undershirt. And it, it's a more intimate thing. It's it's not a formal portrait. It's, it's, it's Anne just as she as she appears. Um, so I don't, I, I think that that informal dress in some ways is even more compelling. I mean, most people would dress up for their portraits, but Anne Boleyn, no one's going to see this but Henry VIII. It's a very contemplative image. She's, she's, she's really thinking. It's a, it's the most beautiful drawing, to be honest. It's wonderful. I, love I, it. I hope it's Anne Boleyn. And if it is, then, then isn't that wonderful? Now, Nicholas Hilliard, moving on to Elizabeth's mm. famous you know, favourite painter in Little. Um, yes. He, he, in his treatise, his 1598 treatise, he actually says um, that he takes Holbein as his muse. Is that really, yes. is, or is that just Hilliard bigging himself up? Because he was dead. Well, you know, Holbein was dead when, you know, when yes. long before Hilliard was born. No, I think it's absolutely genuine. I think Hilliard is saying, look at Holbein, and he says, look at Holbein more than once. He says that that he looks to Holbein's manner of limning, that's Holbein's manner of making miniatures as mm. the model. And we know there are those two wonderful Hilliard or four wonderful Hilliard miniatures on display from the Bosworth Jewel, two of which are copied from Holbein's Whitehall mural. But we also know that Hilliard praised Holbein's portraits and said he's he's the portrait painter I look to more than anybody else. Now Hilliard had no reason to praise Holbein other than to praise Holbein. Um, and even if Hilliard is bigging himself up, it's a wonderful thought, but I'm, I'm not certain he is. He's choosing Holbein to do it. So Holbein is the man who, who everybody looks to. And that last section of the exhibition does look at Holbein's 
influence on later artists, on the portraiture of Edward and Mary, um, not Mary, sorry, Edward and Elizabeth, and Mary as well in, in that wonderful family of Henry VIII, on the work of Hans Ewerth, that amazing portrait of Elizabeth and the goddesses that's been conserved for the exhibition. That's staggering. At Hilliard. Isn't it a gorgeous painting? And that, again, there are a number of paintings in that last gallery that have been conserved for the exhibition, and um, they really all just sing. They're wonderful. I've, I've, well, I found it absolutely stunning. Now, I've read the read the catalogue and I'm rereading it again. And you were obviously captivated by Holbein from quite a quite a young age, were you? I was. I was doing my A levels, and the <laughs> the Royal Collection Holbein drawings went. Um, there was a touring exhibition. And there was um, my local museum had some Holbein drawings. And because I was doing the Tudors at A-level and I've always been fascinated by, you know, medieval Tudor history and I was doing the Tudors as A-level. So I wanted to go and I went and I remember that drawing of John Moore. He's right at the start of the exhibition. He's he's reading a book Mm. and he was a teenager who was lost in his book in 1526, 1527. And there I was standing in the gallery in, you know, this 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 modern museum. And I was a teenager who loved reading books. And so it, it was amazing. And I just remember gazing and gazing and gazing at him. And I bought a postcard and those Holbein drawings have always been there ever since. And they were a large reason that I chose to go on and take Tudor history courses whenever I could for my undergraduate degree where I chose art history as a master's. I went on to do a doctorate and I chose to do 15th and 16th century visual culture in England. And it's all back to those Holbein drawings. So to be able to put them on display and, um, you know, put John Moore on the gallery wall again and and gaze at him again is just the world's biggest treat. It's, you know, it's just wonderful. (laughs) Well, I, I, as I said, I think it is a fabulous exhibition. And um, to know that, that we've got all of this, you know, at our fingertips somebody said to me well you've been so many times mel do you know if it's going on if it's going to go up to scotland or if it's going to go to wales so i've got to ask the question is it going to travel or do people have to come to london we haven't made any announcements for the queen's gallery edinburgh yet so there's there's no confirmation of the, of the program but um, it's on in london until april and um people buy their tickets through the Royal Collection Trust website. They can then take them to the gallery and have them stamped before they leave. And you must do that before you leave. And you can then re-enter the gallery for a year. So you can go to Holbein every day if you want to and then see the following exhibition and the exhibition after that as well. So well, I have um, every intention of doing that. I've got my stamped ticket and I shall be back and back again. Wonderful. Is, anyway, thank you so much for your time. And it's, it's been a real absolutely pleasure. wonderful. And I, I just you know, um, more more power to the Royal Collection Trust. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you're enjoying it. And it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. But thank you ever so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.